On January 4, 2011, Mohamed Bouazizi, a street vendor in the Tunisian city of Ben Arous, died from injuries he incurred by setting himself on fire in protest against the confiscation of his wares by the police. His death set in motion the Arab Spring across North Africa and the Middle East. Ten years later, the politics of protest have not disappeared. In Belarus, protesters took to the streets of Minsk following a disputed presidential election. In Hong Kong, protesters hotly contested the Fugitive Offenders Bill. In the United States of America, the killing of George Floyd prompted protests against racial injustice across the country. All over the world, people are taking their politics to the streets. I'm David Blunt. This is the City Politics Podcast, a roundtable discussion on politics, international relations, and current affairs. Today, we'll give you the city view on the politics of protest. Hello, and welcome to the greatest show on earth, the City Politics Podcast. I'm David Blunt, and I'm joined in studio today by Constantine Vossing. As always, Constantine, how are you doing? Excellent. How are you today? I'm very well. And guess what, Constantine? Tell me. It's our 10th episode. Can you believe wow, it? I, I uh, wasn't even aware. Fantastic. I know. It's a big landmark. It seems just like yesterday we were starting off on this wonderful multimedia journey into the internet, and now we're already 10 episodes down. Blue-eyed now, and naive we were at the time, right? And now here we are, grizzled veterans of media like Edward R. Murrow or George Orwell. <laughs> <laughs> How time flies. Okay. Our guests today, uh, we are joined by Amnon Aaron, uh, Senior Lecturer in International Politics and the head of our department. Amnon's research interests lie in international relations of the Middle East, with a special reference to the Arab-Israeli conflict and the foreign policy of Middle Eastern states. Welcome to the show, Amnon. Thank you, David. Pleasure to be here. And rounding out today's panel is Yepe Mulich, Lecturer in Modern History. Yepa's a global historian of empire and colonialism, especially in the Caribbean and in the Asia Pacific. Most of his work deals with legal and political aspects of this history, including trans-imperial networks, sovereignty and jurisdictional contestations, resistance and revolution, and the lasting legacies of colonization. Welcome. Thank you, David, and thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's our pleasure to have both of you on the show today. Today, we're going to be discussing the politics of protests from Black Lives Matter, the Extinction Rebellion, and pro-democracy movements to the January 6th insurrection and anti-lockdown rallies. The politics of protests seem to be increasing across the world. But before we discuss this, we need to have a look into the city crystal ball. Constantine, what do you do the honors? It's always a pleasure to subject people to this grueling exercise where I ask questions and all you can say is yes or no. I will start with Amnon, if that's okay, for the first five questions, and then turn it over to Jeppe. And then for the final five questions, we reverse the order. That's just fair. So let's start with question number one. Amnon, in 10 years, will we look back at the COVID pandemic and say that democratic states did the right thing by limiting protests against the COVID measures? No. Excellent. Thank you. Jeppe, yes or no? No. Question number two. In the next 10 years, will we see somewhere in the world a protest movement that successfully topples a non-democratic government? Amnon. Yes. Yeppe. Yes, and probably in the next two years. All right. Question number three. In five years, would a mainstream center-right politician, say Theresa May or George Bush Sr., still be welcome to speak on any university campus or might protesters prevent that from happening? Amnon. 
Yes. Jeppe. Yes. Question number four. In order to achieve democratic change in China in the near future, is protest the most effective way to do that? Amnon. No. Jeppe. No, but it is one of them. Question number five. How about North Korea? In order to achieve democratic change there in the near future, is protest the most effective way to do that? Amnon. No. Jeppe. No. All right, let's switch the order now. Uh, we'll start with Jeppe and then turn it over to Amnon. Question number six, Jeppe. How about Iran? In order to achieve democratic change there in the near future, is protest the most effective way to do that? Yes or no? Yes. yes. Amnon. No. Question number seven. Will future protests in any part of the world be inspired by protests elsewhere or by past protests? Something that Huntington called the snowball effect. Jeppe. Uh, yes, that is true for all of world history, and it's going to continue to be true. Thank you. Amnon. Yes. Question number eight. With the proliferation of disinformation, will protesters in the future even really know what objective reality they are protesting against? Jeppe. Yes. Amnon. Yes. Number nine. Jeppe. Will we be seeing more political protests in the next 10 years? Yes or no? More than in the past 10 years? More than now? More than today. We're going to continue to see political protests at a pretty high rate. So, yes. Thank you. Amnon. Yes, continuous pro protests uh, at high rates. Thank you. All right, 10 years from now, Jeppe, will historians view the Arab Spring as a failure? You know, historians don't have yes or no answers, so I, that this can't have a yes or no answer either. This is going to be on the one hand and on the other hand. All right. Amnon. Uh, yes, assuming things as they stand now without change. All right, wonderful. Thank you so much. One of the things that I've noticed when we do the crystal ball is that our historians are far less inclined to give yes or no answers than the people who work in political science. It must be an interdisciplinary thing. I think we need to do an explain it like I'm five. So explain it like I'm five is when we start off the episode and uh, our guests explain to me, who's not the brightest of persons, uh, what it is we're talking about. So when we talk about political protest how do we conceive of this? I should say that I, a lot of my work is on revolutions and, and sort of the history of revolution. And the dividing line between revolution and protest is sometimes thin and blurry. But I think the way I approach protest in particular is as a repertoire of contentious politics, right? So you have politics as a very, very broad phenomenon that includes all sorts of different kinds of activities. And one of those activities is protesting. Protesting is an extra parliamentarian or sort of an, um, it's part of democracy, but it's a part of democracy that goes beyond simply participating in elections or representing people to, to represent your political views in parliament or in, or in other bodies. And protest is the manifestation of public uh, sentiment on the streets or, or in some kind of forum where politics can be expressed beyond representation or outside of representation. And, and it, you know, it's an integrated part of how democracies work. It's, it's, it's a fundamental civil liberties in, in modern democracies to participate in public protests, whether that's marches or demonstrations or, or other kinds of things, including sometimes civil disobedience activities. But it's also an integral part of uh, non-democratic regimes, even though it's one that's always cracked down on, right? So in other words, uh, non-democratic regimes are very often face protests and often more protests than democratic ones. But of course, uh, in a non-democratic regime, political protesting is a direct challenge to the authority of that regime because it's essentially manifesting disobedience to the authority of the regime, right? So, so 
when we talk about protesting, I think it's 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 a general phenomenon, but it's often good to distinguish protests that take place within a regime or within a system that allows them and protests that takes place in regimes that just, that specifically attempt to uh, uh, stop that kind of, of um, democratic activity, that kind of political activity. But of course, again, here, the boundaries are blurry as, as, the, as we will probably talk about the police bill, right? But it's not like democracies can't control protest or can't attempt at put limits on protesting to just as authoritarian regimes do. So I think I agree with the Epe that there is a spectrum. And I think that maybe my starting point is that uh, protests, wherever uh, they occur, always face constraints. Uh, it just really depends what constraints they face. Um, the other thing I would probably say that this spectrum can really involve things that come from very innocuous uh, measures uh, described wonderfully well in this book, Alone in Berlin, where simply the protagonist spreads around photos. And by doing that, you know, he's protesting uh, against the regime. And of course, they can take a, the other side of the spectrum where they take a very violent form, uh, which of course raises again the discussion to what extent is the actually government responding in a way that secures its citizens, or is it really uh, directing its it response to, to suppress the protest? I think in essence, a protest always has to be and have some sort of antagonistic relation with either an authority or a narrative uh, and a very clear counterposition towards it. And I also think a protest has to involve clear demand, uh, which is usually integral to process itself. So this is how I would see sort of generally this phenomenon of protest drawing on the epic. I think that's a really great point that both of you make about the dimensions of protest. Uh, certainly when I think of protest, I have sort of in my mind, the big anti-war marches against the Vietnam War or the Iraq War. But I try to remember something that E.P. Thompson wrote when he was sort of chronicling the history of the English working class, that resistance, especially by people who might be disadvantaged in society, often has to occur below the radar of a lot of things. And he looked at uh, the phenomena of anonymous letters being sent to landlords by their tenants you know, when there were rent raises, especially during economic depressions. And he makes a very convincing argument that this is a form of political protest, even though it is decentralized, even though it's not public. Uh, political protest sometimes takes forms that our listeners might be surprised to hear about. Definitely agree. Just to chip in on that, there was this fascinating case uh, in Argentina when the uh, elections were first introduced after the military junta was, was deposed from power. Uh, and there was a law that citizens had to vote. Uh, and of course, representing the disillusion of many voters, Several of them decided to put in the ballot a picture of the late Diego Armando Maradona, the great footballer, instead of casting a vote. So really the spectrum, as you say, is very wide and of course involves these disparate, decentralized, innocuous measures on the one hand, and on the other hand, what might emerge as very centralized, organized, coherent, systematic uh, onslaughts on the regime, on the government, or indeed other powerful players like multinational corporations, to take one example. Yeah, yeah, and just to, just to come in on that, you know, the, the great Charles Tilly has this notion of bread riots as being a manifestation of contentious politics, right? Which means that even things that don't look obviously political, things that seem to simply come out of economic necessity or general discontent often have hidden political meanings are part of contentious politics in ways that we're not necessarily used to thinking about politics, right? So a boycotting elections is a pretty clear manifestation, but something like bread riots or other 19th century manifestations of discontent with society in general are other good examples of things that are actually political, but just cast in a different language than the politics of the day. 
there's plenty of that going on today as well, right? So we have uh, uh, different types of protests. Protests can manifest themselves uh, or can manifest um, discontent in very different ways. But why don't we look at the consequences and the causes of protests? Uh, and maybe we start with the consequences, actually, because many of the crystal ball questions were about those consequences. And specifically the question, when are protests an effective means to achieve some kind of political end? When do they actually work? And uh, we've illustrated that uh, by using three, asking you three questions about regime change in the, in the big kind of picture. Uh, out of six questions, uh, there were five no's. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, both of you and three questions, six possible answers. There were five no's saying, no, protest is not the most effective way uh, of doing this. And then Yeppe was the one who had three no's. So why don't you start, Yeppe? Why is protest um, sometimes not effective? I just think that protests are part of a set of activities that have to go together and a set of practices that have to go together. And I think the protests are effective at a lot of things, but if the one thing we're interested in is regime change, it, it's more tricky, right? They're very effective in mobilizing people. They're very effective in political awakenings, in a sense, and, and big protest movements often have long-term consequences of awakening a particular generation or a particular set of people to resistance or to uh, political movements or, or to create later organizations or to create organized labor unions or other things that then eventually lead to regime change or lead to other big transformations. But the protest moment itself doesn't necessarily have those immediate consequences, right? But if we think about something like the Berlin Wall falling, the Berlin Wall wouldn't have fallen simply because people took to the streets for a few weeks. It, it fell because of decades of kind of underground activism and grassroots movements. And then those long-term activities coming together with a particular international moment, a particular geopolitical moment and a particular moment in, in Soviet policy, right? And that's true for most moments of transformation that if you ascribe them simply to the protest taking place, you're missing the bigger picture. So that's my sort of, you know, global historian's perspective that, that the protests in themselves are not causing regime change. They're amplifying things. They're laying down foundations that might later lead to it. And they're often happen in cycles, right? It's, it's rare that protests break out in a place that has never seen protests before. Rather, they come and go, right? Take Hong Kong, for example. Massive protest in 2003, in, in 2012, in 2014, and then in 2019. And all of those are separate instances, but they're linked. And they're linked organizationally, but also simply because people have learned from previous protest movements and are picking up on those lessons. I think that when we get to deeply authoritarian regimes, protests are relatively inefficient on their own because the regimes often don't have a problem cracking down on them. Right. So if protests happen in regimes that pretend to be liberal democracies, in order to hold up that facade, that pretension, they often have to meet some of the some of the demands. Right. That's the it's Daniel Ritter's argument of the iron cage of liberalism. Right. If a regime pretends to be liberal, it actually is constrained in how hard it can crack down on a protest, even if it's not really a liberal regime. Right. Take um, Chile. Take several of the uh, take Tunisia. It has an illusion to uphold, and it has ties to liberal democracies overseas that it wants to keep intact. If a regime is not pretending to be a liberal democracy, it has far fewer qualms about cracking down violently, and that's often relatively efficient in the short term. I think that's a really good question, Constantine. I think, you know, that regime change is kind of the holy grail, maybe, of protests. And um, I think I'll probably go back here to 
to really the landmark book by Theda Scotchpole, which subsequently, of course, was criticized. But one of the major points that I think she made, which is still very valid, is that states have to be uh, sufficiently weak for protests to lead subsequently to, to regime change. And I think drawing a direct line uh, uh, between her study of the uh, Soviet, uh, the Bolshevik revolution, uh, uh, the revolution in China and the French revolution to maybe the Arab uprisings. What is interesting to see in what unfolded in the Middle East in the last 10 years was the uh, very quick shift from the almost euphoria that spread around the world when the first protests began in Tunisia, then spread of course to Egypt. And the, the first association was that of the solidarity movement in Poland and the way it spread towards other parts of Europe and of course ended up with the uh, uh, collapse of, of the Berlin Wall. What we saw interestingly, uh, and I think contrastingly be, between, those, between these events is in the Middle East actually the, the strength of most of the states and their uh, ruthlessly repressive nature actually stood with a few exceptions. Libya was one, which of course the regime there was toppled as a result of external intervention, not as a result of protests. Tunisia was a bit of an outlier in the sense that it was far less repressive and less authoritarian. But in those states that experienced massive revolts, Egypt, uh, where the military bounced back with a vengeance, and of course the most tragic and terrible cases of them all, Syria, where the regime really relentlessly repressed the large-scale processes, uh, protests, which were, of course, supported uh, by external forces, and ended up reclaiming or clawing back the country at a, a really inhumane cost in human life and suffering and so on. So I think one you know, precondition or perhaps one element that helps us sort of understand and foresee whether human whether vast protests, wide protests will end up in regime change is really to look, first of all, at the strength of states and the degree to which they can repress their opposition. Similarly, the East European moment, and more broadly, the collapse of the Soviet Union, was inextricably linked to the weakness of the Soviet Union, at least in terms of its economic performance. And I think one other element, which was the extent to which the Soviet leadership actually continued to believe in Soviet ideology. And when that convergence happened of economic malperformance together with profound economic doubts, uh, then of course the spread of protests in Eastern Europe and the chain effect that that generated came to fruition in, in, in a very positive manner. And a similar case perhaps could be drawn to South African apartheid. Again, a, a point where a regime almost could no longer rule in any reasonable way and perhaps also, also stop believe in its own credo. So I guess to sum up what I'm saying is that, you know, there has to be a significant dent in the ideology of the regime, in the capacity of the state to actually rule and suppress protests, for process to sort of fuel the energy that is ultimately required to pull off a regime change. If on the other hand, and with this I will end, we're looking at more moder modest aspects of, of, of changes in the regime, then the discussion becomes much more subtle. So interestingly, again, pointing to the Middle East, we can see how the growing influence of Islamists in society in various countries, Egypt is one example, Syria before the revolution is another example, even Iraq under Saddam Hussein is another, was not sufficient to cause a regime change, but certainly prompted the regime to recloak itself and portray itself as much more Islamist 
than perhaps it was uh, two decades ago. These are some really, really important and, and great points that you guys made. And I would like to build on them a little bit from my own perspective, um, which is concerned with uh, with social movements and protests in the late 19th and early 20th century. So I'm doing research on the mobilization of the labor movement. And one thing that I found really nicely complements the two things that you guys just said. Uh, uh, you've emphasized uh, the um, sort of the, the role of the regime, uh, whether it opens both ideologically and materially sort of a crack uh, to, to sort of to, to make protests viable and uh, to make protests effective and succeed at the end of the day. And what I find uh, uh, interestingly, and that builds on uh, both of your points of view and, and it confirms the, the, the things that you say for the labor movement as well, as well is that uh, a protest is successful uh, if you have leaders, and that is what I would emphasize, if you have leaders, um, they don't have to be centralists like Lenin in all cases. They can also be networking leaders. So they, there's different styles of leadership. But what I find is that you need, uh, that you need a political agency uh, of well-informed and strategically thinking leaders who are able to understand the regime in which they find themselves, which is what Amman emphasized, and to understand what Yeppe said, which is to sort of develop a, a menu of, uh, of acts of contention that are well embedded and that respond in, an, in a good way, that respond in a reasonable way to the context in which they find themselves. And the interesting thing is that lots of leaders are not very good at doing that sort of thing. Out of 20 countries that I look at in the late 19th century, 12 of them made good decisions, but eight of them made really, really poor decisions. For example, they started protesting on the street in countries where protest was actually so strongly discouraged that it can only lead to bloodshed and, and the total uh, implosion of the movement. In other cases, uh, leaders, uh, for example, in Argentina, in Spain, they copied techniques of parliamentary involvement, but they didn't even have uh, effective voting rights in those countries. So I think what uh, is important is to understand the context and the menu of strategies that are at leaders' disposal and to understand the conditions under which mobilizing leaders make good or bad decisions. Speaking of leaders, it might be a good uh, sort of pivot point at this point to talk about the other side of uh, the protest movement, which is how states react uh, to the demands of protesters. One of the things that I took note of in the crystal ball is that both of you said that democracies did the wrong thing by limiting protests against COVID measures. And this, I think, will be somewhat controversial because many of our listeners might think that, well, limiting protest in times of a pandemic is legitimate. Part of this is just a political answer. I'm, I'm a civil rights fundamentalist in a certain way, or I don't know, left libertarian or whatever you want to call it. But I, I think that anything that aggressively limits civil rights, including the right to assembly and, and, the, and the freedom of speech is, is a bad move. And I think most of the measures taking against, taken against um, anti-protest uh, anti-COVID protests, anti-COVID lockdown measures or whatever, you know, the the, the protests against masks and lockdowns and so on. I, I think most of them have been too draconian and have been basically using the the pandemic as an excuse to to crack down on, on civil liberties. And I think that's just politically, it's a bad move. But I think strategically, it's also bad because it means that rather than confront the pretty poor arguments that are made in those protests and engage them in a political manner where you 
refute them and, and show the facts, you're essentially silencing them and that everybody knows that once you start censoring stuff or silencing stuff, it doesn't go away, it just bubbles under the surface and it essentially becomes more ammunition for uh, the people protesting COVID measures, right? So if you silence them, that's that's in some ways much worse than just engaging them in a, in a, in a debate, which you are, at least on the factual basis, pretty sure you're going to win. Yeah, I think just drawing on Yep, I think uh, Armatia Sen was one of the first people that, that had this study about why democracies never experienced famine. They may have inflicted it, but never experienced it themselves. And one of his conclusions was that there's always somebody that warns what lies ahead and, and governments can't simply ignore that. So I think on really the strategic point that, that Yepe made, I mean, just for that fundamental issue, the public is an important part of the scrutiny mechanism that democracies have. It can't only happen in parliament or in the media. And also, frankly, protests are the only place where those groups who are least represented in society can actually come out and say what they have to say. At least there is that theoretical potential opportunity to do that, whereas a lot of the rest of the scrutiny and mutual debates happen within the circles that only really the elites can access to. So just for that point to start with, on a very just and sort of strategic point, you know, I think limiting, uh, putting uh, constraints over the protests in COVID was mistaken, also wrong. And also, I agree with, with Yepa's point. I think governments really have to make an immensely strong case when they decide to limit uh, uh, civil liberties. And uh, I really don't think that there was any data to suggest that, that, you know, that that case could be made in relation to demonstrations. When we look at, for example, there's no, been, there, there's no correlation that has been shown, for instance, between the wide protests of the Black Lives Matter movement and, for example, um, increasing cases of COVID and things like that. So there was really no, no evidence nor justification to limit protests, certainly outdoor protests. And, and for these reasons, I really think that, you know, governments should be resisted firmly uh, in any intent to, to curtail civil liberties or the right to protest. Yeah, I feel as though we uh, we have now a fifth member on the protest or on the, the podcast, which is uh, John Stuart Mill's ghost, uh, talking about the marketplace of ideas and how we have to have an open political forum where everyone can express their points of view, even if they're wrong, because that's how we find out if they're wrong. And, you know, I, I will also say that I'm, I'm sympathetic to this view, but in the 21st century, we're running into some, I guess, epistemological problems in which people seem to be inhabiting different universes of knowledge or different universes of experience, uh, where someone who is engaged in anti-COVID protests or anti-COVID lockdown protests doesn't seem to accept the same facts and figures and data that uh, other people do. And is this going to exacerbate uh, how politics is done in the 21st century, especially the politics of the street? And you guys were both very optimistic, actually, uh, in, when it came to answering the question about the proliferation of disinformation. Right? What, what speaks from, you know, from David's point is that disinformation actually uh, contributes to create a situation in where there is this epistemological insecurity. But you guys both said, no, 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 no. Uh, protesters will still know which objective reality they're protesting against. So you seem to be much more optimistic about that. I agree that disinformation and the spread of disinformation in the digital online age is a problem, but I also think that the spread of misinformation is as old as the spread of information. And I think if you look at the French Revolution, if you look at the slave uprisings of the Caribbean, if you look at 1848, if you look at the end of the 19th century, all of these moments of 
political unrest and social movements mobilizing at large scale are full of rumors and, and disinformation and misinformation being spread both on the on, on, on both sides of the argument. So I don't I think sometimes we are sensationalizing the newness of this a little bit. I think information is always paired with misinformation and that's just how it works. We used to call it rumors and now we call it misinformation or disinformation or whatever, right? But but th these things are not new. The one thing that I'm slightly worried about when we when we're talking about this is that the real challenge isn't protesters the re real challenge isn't people spreading this stuff the real challenge is political leaders participating and amplifying that right that's for me that's a much bigger issue than facebook or or, or other things that, that that are sort of very off the moment right i think the trump administration is much more dangerous in the response to covid than anti-vaxxers, because at the end of the day, if you look at the data, people are not actually that hesitant to take vaccines. Everybody said, or a lot of people said they were hesitant to take the vaccine two months ago, but in, this, in the rollout in the US today, people are doing it. And that's black people who people were afraid wouldn't take it. It's conservatives who we were afraid wouldn't take it. It's, it's across the board, people are pretty happy to take it once they get it offered. And I think that that is indicative of a larger trend, which is people are very skeptical of a lot of stuff, but when push come to shove, they're often willing to engage in larger projects if they feel like the majority of people are behind them. I think I, I would certainly agree with, with Yepen that uh, I would even go one step further. I would say that maybe social media has not changed that much the impact of this of disinformation. It might've changed the way it is done, but misinformation, as Yepen said, is as old uh, as information is. I actually think that what has changed as a result of the uh, information revolution in information technologies, which is directly relevant to protests, is the capacity of states for surveillance. And here, I think we are entering new territory. And if there is a risk to protests and to the actual ability to protest without being disproportionately penalized, uh, it really stems from, from the growing ability of states, uh, but also various private entities to gather immense amounts of information about us individuals without asking our consent and afterwards using it in many ways that we're really not aware of. That is something that has changed quite dramatically. And even, you know, historically, I don't think there has been a precedent, uh, a precedent for that. Now, going back again to the Arab uprisings, we actually, you know, we, we actually have seen, again, in the beginning of the uprisings, there was a celebration of social media and, and, and some early commentators spoke about these uprisings as the social media revolutions. But we saw in the Middle East, in the case of Syria, uh, most dramatically, also in the case of Iran, of course, how actually states were able to take social media and to turn it on its head. Uh, you know, in the early instances of the uprisings in Syria, when uh, some of the protesters were detained, their uh, Facebook details were taken from them, and then all their uh, contacts were detained as well. Or similarly, the Syrian state would generate SMS invitations and Facebook invitations to come to a particular venue to protest. And then when everybody arrived, they were similarly detained. And those are relatively simple, rudimentary forms of how to sort of take social media, turn it on its head, and from a tool that could, you know, really help mobilize protest actually to to turn it on its head. But I think the main change really has been in the capacity to gather information, survey the population, and of course, if necessary, penalize the population. I think China is a very good example of that as well. And Iran, too, has developed very capable skills in doing that. And I think this is the, the qualitative change that we are witnessing 
in the onset of the 21st century and a major threat to protests, which nevertheless, I think, will continue, notwithstanding that. I think social media as a tool of protesting or a revolutionary and counter-revolutionary tool is really important, right? But but it's exactly a two-sided sword. And, and, and it is a qualitative difference from previous protests that really only emerged around 2009-10 uh, at a large scale. And, and from my own work on Hong Kong, social media and various kinds of online activity was extremely important for mobilization, right? Without Telegram and Signal and other modes of mobilization and coordination, you wouldn't have had the same size and um, rapid response of a leaderless movement like the Hong Kong protests. But of course, the flip side is exactly as Amnon outlines it, that that the state is also able to capitalize on those things, right? So that when you cross the border from Hong Kong to mainland China, your phone is taken and they check if you've if 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 you've participated at any protest activities, if you have any photos on your phone, and then they arrest you and, and question you on, on the other side of the border, right? Or, you know, look at what, what's happening in Burma. On the one hand, we wouldn't have had the stories out of Myanmar that we have if it wasn't for phones with cameras and social media, which can amplify what's going on and amplify the massacres and, and show the world the massacres. On the other hand, the state is then able to step in and, and literally do internet blackouts for, for 24 hours at a time, stopping all communication, including the communication of international uh, the international press, right? So, so I think social media is just a reality of protesting today, but it, it's one that cuts both ways and gives both protesters and states more tools in their toolbox. I find it fascinating that we have talked about so many obstacles to successful protests. You know, we've said that, oh, we need smart leaders that really understand the context in which, uh, in which they act, in which they mobilize people. We do need protests uh, to be part of a larger menu of strategies that are all enacted. Uh, we need protesters to be more adept at using digital technology. That was the final point that both of you emphasized now. We also need a context, and that's what Amman emphasized, that sort of opens a crack uh, for, for protesters to sort of to, to sneak into and uh, to, 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 to leverage. Um, now, with all these obstacles in the way, you still both responded to the question whether we will see a protest movement that successfully topples a non-democratic government in the next 10 years in the affirmative. So how is it possible that that's gonna happen in your mind, even though there are all these obstacles to protest? What makes protest so powerful despite all of these obstacles that you conclude, well, there's gonna be something in the next 10 years where despite all these, all these obstacles, protest is going to be successful, even implementing change, achieving change on a very massive scale, toppling a government. I think what gives me optimism is, is, is basically stems from two things. I think authoritarian regimes tend to become sclerotic. They, they, they tend to lose touch. Uh, uh, they tend to become corrupt also. They are less accountable. They have overwhelming and immense power. I think though over time, these processes usually weaken them. And then the question, of course, is A, when does protest start? B, and I think that is perhaps one of the few but still positive lessons from the Arab uprisings, is that at some point the fear factor does break. And when the fear factor breaks, there is usually a very widespread oppositional movement. And providing that it is well organized uh, and has a clear agenda, then I see that converging with that, if you like, long durée erosion of authoritarian, authoritarian regimes. Uh, with all the 
growing discrepancy between the power that states can wield, and of course, with the help of technological means, uh, I still think, I don't think that that power has reached the point where it can completely and indefinitely box human beings when their frustration, concerns, uh, and pain, frankly, reaches the point where they simply cannot hold it anymore. I think there still has to be certain conditions that are met for protests to generate change with a maximum change or regime change, but that is not different from any other historical period. Uh, we know from history that some protest movements have changed, but several have failed as well. And that will still be that will still be the record. So which country did you have in mind when you answered yes to the question that protests will successfully topple a non-democratic government? Did you have one in mind or several, or was it just a general sort of expectation? It was more of a general expectation. Uh, th that is the honest truth. I mean, I could sort of try and guess and see here or there, but it was a general expectation that in the next 10 years, we will see a popular mobilization that brings down an authoritarian regime, which perhaps might seem a surprise, but maybe if we would have been an insider to that regime, we would have seen that erosion uh, from inside and maybe not been as surprised as we will be. I completely agree with everything Amnon said. I think there's just, you know, there, we used to say that history bends towards liberal democracy or participatory democracy. Then people started saying really history moves in the direction of technocratic authoritarianism. I think the point is history continues to move in the, in the direction of messy, com complex, different parallel systems. And we're going to keep having forever Tunisia that's going to be in Egypt for every French Revolution, there's going to be the, the counter-revolutionary crackdown to the 19th century, right? There are going to be successful protest movements, successful revolutions, and, and failed ones, and they're, they're going to be side by side. There's no reason to think that only, only one of the types would, 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 would continue. To be more specific, though, I think, I think the place to look is Southeast Asia. I think um, people were disappointed that nothing really happened in Hong Kong and that it actually went the opposite direction. But from my perspective, it's not that surprising because Hong Kong is essentially a Chinese colony and addressing the Hong Kong government was never really the real, that was never really gonna bring change. Only changing things in China would have, would have dramatically changed things in Hong Kong, right? But Thailand and, and Myanmar are both different there. We're talking about a national context and I don't know if both the, the, the Thai and the Burmese military juntas are gonna fall. I think that's too optimistic, but I think that one of them is gonna to have to make changes. One, because repression is costly for a regime, right? It might be their best way of survival, but it, it is costly. And the more they have to repress to keep in power, the more cost is gonna incur both on the populations, but also on the regimes in their, their shred of legitimacy, right? And two, because at some point there's going to be elite fracture in these places, right? You, when you ask security forces to shoot and kill their neighbors or their family members or their friends, many of them are going to do it. But if you ask them to keep do it, keep doing it in order to keep a regime in place that doesn't necessarily incur that many benefits to them, they're eventually going to say no. And I think that's happened small scale in in, in Myanmar already. And I don't know if if the junta is going to be able to keep that going. Uh, the repression is, is getting too bloody and the pushback from all the different groups in society that don't have an active purchase in the junta is going to get uh, to a point where, where something is going to have to change, I think. Well, it's not fair to uh, let our guests speculate about which states are going to fall apart. So Constantine, who, what, where would you look for a, a successful protest movement in the next decade? I'm going to say Vietnam. Uh, I think that what's going to happen in Vietnam uh, is going to be the kind of thing we expected to happen in China. 
the classical case of uh, a modernization that modernization theory had in mind. And then I think I'm with Yepper generally. Modernization theory had this notion of a sort of a, a linear development uh, toward in, in liberal democracy uh, and economic growth uh, going hand in hand. Uh, and um, it thought that every country would be like England uh, in the end, uh, or you know, with maybe a few decades or centuries down the road. And uh, I don't think that's that's going to happen. But uh, I think there's still uh, it's still a possibility, uh, a possible path, uh, rather than sort of a determinate path. But it's a possible path that's outlined by modernization theory, the expectation that economic growth will lead to a democracy. And, uh, you know, in, in China, we haven't uh, seen that. And uh, one reason is, I think, uh, the, uh, the improvement uh, in uh, surveillance uh, technology, the more effective use of that resource that the, the Chinese Communist Party has perfected uh, in, in, in a way that um, that's really mind boggling, actually. Um, but what we're going to see is uh, Vietnam going through those stages of further economic development, uh, just like China has uh, in the past decade, and then uh, a, a middle-class-based movement of, you know, that, that will use protests alongside other forms of political mobilization, and that will, in the end, lead to the emergence of liberal democracy. That, I think, would be my, uh, would be my uh, bet. Well, I think since, since, um, since both my predecessors have bet, I think my bet, if I had to guess, would be Belarusia. Uh, and I think that that to me is is, is a big suspect. Uh, we saw, uh, so, you know, the unprecedented opposition in the last election campaign, and, and I think also, uh, you know, one aspect which we haven't touched upon yet, of course, is the gendered aspect of of protests. And I think again, that aspect which we saw very much in Belarus, together with the potential, I wouldn't say weakening, but at least changing projection from that massive uh, uh, satellite. Uh, or, or, or rather that, that massive projector, not satellite, called Russia. Uh, you know, that kind of convergence, I think, coupled with the fact that, you know, Belarusia is on the cusp of Europe, all of that together, I think, does bode quite well for a protest movement that will bring down, finally, uh, the regime of, of, of Lukashenko. So that, that would be my guess if I, had to, if I had to be pressed with all the caveats that we would normally attach onto these circumstances. I have not given my two cents, but I'm, I'm going to be a contrarian as always. And I'm going to say the United States of America, uh, because it is increasingly moving towards minoritarian rule. I think that's going to be the trend in U.S. politics over the next decade, with Republicans increasingly trying to solidify a white minoritarian state. And that was going to receive a lot of pushback, I think, on demographic lines. So it's going to wind up with big changes in America around things like the Electoral College, around voting rights, and this is going to be the result of a lot of protests in the street, I think. If I had to guess where we're going to see a big change, I would look at America over uh, perhaps authoritarian regimes. So does that mean that you think that America is an authoritarian regime? I don't think that the United States of America is an autocratic regime yet, but there certainly is a growing element of autocratic politics in the United States. We can see this in how many people refuse to recognize the results of the latest election, uh, the January 6th insurrection, the militarization of the police, the prison industrial complex, and the increasing attempts to suppress voting rights in, uh, in the United States to entrench minority rule. I don't see these trends being reversed without people taking to the streets and in great numbers. And having thrown that particular uh, gas can onto the fire, we've run out of time. Thanks for listening. Uh, the Politics of Protest is an intense episode, so let's do a little bit of mindfulness. 
Close your eyes. Take a deep breath. Visualize something that makes you happy. I see a like button. And what's this? Oh, it's you. And you're hitting the like button. And then you're sharing the episode. Why, bless my stars, you even wrote a review. Ooh, mindfulness works. I feel much better. Thank you. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at TheCityPolitics, and you can follow Constantine at K underscore Vossing, and I'm at GD Blunt. Oh, I do like to get an extra follower one step closer to that blue tick, y'all. I'd like to thank Amnon Aaron for joining us. Be sure to check out his new book, Israeli Foreign Policy Since the End of the Cold War, from Cambridge University Press. Yepe Mulich can also be followed on Twitter at jmulich, J-M-U-L-I-C-H. Be sure to check out his book as well, In a Sea of Empires, Networks and Crossings in the Revolutionary Caribbean. You might also be interested in his piece, The End of Autonomy in Hong Kong, which was put forward in East Asia Forum. This has been the City Politics Podcast, the official podcast of the Department of International Politics at City, University of London. A big thanks to our producer, Atina Dimitrova, and to Cambio for the music. Take care, everyone. I think I'm going to make myself an espresso. Bye.